Good morning. You find your seats. We'll get started this morning. And if you would turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 12. Again, that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Father, God, I'm humbled by these words, inspired by you, yet at the same time coming from the heart of Paul, Lord, that even with opponents, even with tormentors, Lord, even with, with these hard circumstances that he found himself, Lord, in, in, in prison, that he rejoices because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. God, I pray that this is our heart, Lord, that our passion, Lord, is to glorify you by being faithful to the calling that you have given us, Lord, which is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would have that heart, Lord, that we would have that passion. That we would find our joy, Lord, in the gospel advancing. God, I pray that for us. Be with us as we walk through this passage in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're uh, kind of going to continue where we left off last week as we are slowly walking through this letter we have seen after Paul's greeting, formal greeting, then a personal greeting, a prayer that Paul writes out. After uh, these things, uh, Paul starts the body of this epistle by explaining what is going on with him in Rome. And we spent uh, last week a whole sermon on getting the context of this passage. Uh, What exactly has happened to Paul in the last four years as he has been in Rome now for uh, uh, some time? proclaiming the good news and sharing the gospel, uh, that he was joy-filled in prison, being under house arrest, because of what was happening around him. And I have three points uh, of the sermon this morning. The three points are simply this. Joy despite persecution. Joy despite opposition. And then finally, the last point, the reason for this joy. So let's start with the first point, joy despite persecution. Paul's joy despite persecution. Verse 12 says this, I want you to know, brothers. Now, this is actually a common phrase that we see in ancient writings. It's, it's used to bring attention to, to a point that it's about to be made. Paul wanted the church, this would have been read out loud in front of the church at Philippi, he wanted the church to pay attention to what he's about to say. So again, verse 12 I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As I said last week, one of the main purposes of this letter Paul wrote to the church at Philippi was to explain that despite Paul's circumstances, he was joy-filled. That despite his imprisonment, the gospel was advancing. This is a, a main theme In the epistle, again, this letter, one commentator wrote this, that Paul's overriding concern in this letter was that their sorrows, the church's sorrows, 
over his affliction would be tempered by their joy over his faithfulness to the Lord and the great reward that awaits him in heaven. Paul wanted them not to be sad, but to share in the fullness measure his deep and abiding joy in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, last week, again, we spent a a whole sermon looking on what Paul meant when he said, what has happened to me. We learned that it's been about four years since Paul has seen this church, and a lot has happened within those four years. By the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he went to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit to go there. He went to Jerusalem, and he was falsely accused by his own Jewish people. That he ended up in a Roman prison, that he was mistreated and misrepresented, and, and was unjustly kept in prison for two whole years in Caesarea before ever be, being shipped to Rome, where he'll spend two more years being under house arrest. On his way to Rome, we learn that he was shipwrecked and even bitten by a poisonous snake, and when he got to Rome, he was chained to a Roman guard without any privacy awaiting word from a pagan emperor whether he would live or die and it was all of this was all of this that paul was referring to when he wrote what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel as i said last week it's it's pretty amazing that paul could look at all this evil that has happened to him over the the last couple years and say with joy What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now the word really in Greek is melon. It's translated greater in the NASB, really in the ESV, the translation I'm using. But I think rather is probably a a, a better translation because it's kind of a comparison word. But what has happened to me has rather served to advance the gospel. You would, you would think that what, what has happened to Paul in, in the last four years uh, would have hindered the advance of the gospel. And, and that was the concern of the church of Philippi. But Paul wanted them to know, he's writing to them, to let them know what has happened to him has rather served to advance the gospel. And it's done it in at least two ways that Paul mentions, in evangelism and in encouragement. Let's look at verse 13. This is the evangelism. Verse 13 says, So that it, the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Again, we learned last week that this was the the most elite soldiers within the the Roman army. They were the best of the best. There was about 9,000 of them. They were respected men in the the Roman Empire, and, and especially the city of Rome itself. And the gospel has become known to all of them. To all of them throughout the whole imperial guard. And then Paul says this, and to all the rest. Who's the all the rest? I I said last week, I I just think this is everyone. All the rest, the, the whole city of Rome. Therefore, it seems like when you kind of put this all together, a, f- a few members of the Imperial Guard uh, that were probably chained to Paul for hours, a few members were saved as Paul proclaimed the gospel to them and, and, and discipled them under Paul's teaching. And, and these few soldiers must have shared the gospel with the other 9,000 and eventually even members of Caesar's own household. Because Paul writes in Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Therefore, I'm guessing that the word must have got out in the city of Rome about this guy in prison with an amazing story and a compelling life. And eventually, the the story of Paul spread throughout the whole city of Rome, and, and with Paul's story, the gospel. Remember Acts twenty-eight thirty. it says this, that he, this is Paul, that he lived there, Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all. I'm guessing a lot of people from the city of Rome came to Paul and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Therefore, Paul could say to the church of Philippi with excitement, with joy, 
want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's imprisonment created a, an evangelistic opportunity, one that, that reached the whole city of Rome, just a massive outreach of the most influential city in the entire Roman Empire. But that's not all Paul's imprisonment did. Not only did it give him personal opportunities to share the gospel, but it also encouraged the saints. It emboldened the saints. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now this seems to defy human logic because you would think that persecution would discourage Right, discourage those from sharing the gospel because of fear. I mean, that's the purpose of, of persecution in the first place, is it not? To create fear. To stop the spread of Christianity. To stop the spread of Christian beliefs, Christian teachings. To, to stop the spread of the gospel being, being boldly proclaimed. But Paul writes that the exact opposite has happened. That most of the brothers, fellow Christians, probably referring to those within the city of Rome, most of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This explains how the gospel spread so quickly in the city of Rome. I said this last week, or at least I alluded to it last week. It it defies logic. We look at church history in the last 2,000 years, and, and whenever persecution happens, it seems to strengthen the church, not weaken it. It seems to embolden the church, to purify the church, even to to purify its message. In fact, we we see the church spreading like crazy in in China right now, under persecution, with a pure gospel message. Again, this explains how the gospel spread so quickly in the city of Rome. Not only was Paul proclaiming the good news to, to all who would come to him with boldness and without hindrance. That's Acts 28. But, but because of Paul's imprisonment, other Christians within the city are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Because of the providence of God and the faithfulness of Paul, the gospel had spread throughout the whole city of Rome. Listen, there's an application here that I think is is super important. You you just don't know what God will do with your faithfulness. I mean, think of Paul for a second. He didn't plan on being arrested. He knew it was going to happen. The Spirit made it very clear that that wasn't in his plans. He didn't plan on on being shipped to Rome. In fact, I'm pretty sure Paul thought he was going to get arrested and then killed. In fact, his greatest hero, Jesus, that's exactly what happened to him. He was arrested by the Romans and then was crucified. He didn't plan on being chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But that was God's plan. Let me be clear, throughout, throughout Paul's life, I just want to be clear on this, he, he was always under the sovereign care of God. His life was was never out of control. In fact, Ephesians 1 tells us that that before the foundations of the world, before Paul was ever even born, his life was in the hands of a sovereign God. God was in control of his life. Every detail, every aspect, even his sin. I mean, we, we learned last week that he was there at Stephen's stoning. He was holding the garments of those that were stoning Stephen. He was a part of what was happening there. And even that God used for his glory, for his salvation, for Paul's salvation. For God's glory, for Paul's salvation. Every aspect of Paul's life was under the the sovereign control of God. But the reality of this truth became so much more apparent when he was arrested. He no longer had the freedom to to go place to place to share the gospel wherever he wanted to. His life was completely in the hands of God. And 
what did Paul do with the situation he found himself in? He was faithful. He was faithful. Chain me to, to a guard, to a soldier, okay. I'll faithfully share the gospel to this man over and over and over and over again. It was through both the providence of God and the faithfulness of Paul that the gospel advanced. And listen, I want to be clear, that's our calling. It's our calling. Not to be an apostle, that's not what I'm saying. Not to be stuck in a, in a Roman prison, not to be chained to a Roman guard. Our calling is to be faithful. Faithful. Faithful with the situation God has placed you in. We are simply called to trust in God's sovereignty, the circumstances of your life, and be faithful. You know, there are a lot of Christians within the church, and I have met many, that just lose sleep at night because they, they want to know what the will of God is for their life. I mean, a lot of times it's 20-year-olds it's trying to figure out where they should go, what career they should have, who they should marry, and they just want to know what God's will is for their life. What, what is it? You know, the ironic thing is this. God, God has made his will com- completely clear and well-known in Scripture. Clearly in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, 16 through 18, it says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. It's that simple. Our calling as Christians is not to find some mystical will of God in our lives. No. You know what? You're you're right in the middle of God's will right now. (laughs) You know how I know this? Because God is sovereign. And he, he has sovereignly placed you in your circumstances, your, your job, your family, your parenting, if you're a stay-at-home mom, your, your trials, your health conditions, what, whatever it is, the goal shouldn't be to try to figure out what God's will is. The goal is to be faithful in all circumstances. Here's God's will. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Even being in in prison, chained to a Roman guard, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. James Montgomery Boyce writes this about Paul's imprisonment. There's a, a special application here. You can bear witness to people at work who come by your desk. At home, your your kitchen sink or your hospital bed. If you do, God will bless your efforts. You will see spiritual fruit. What's more, it will, will entirely change the way you look at your circumstances, whatever the cause. You can learn to say with Paul, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance gospel. And because of this, because the gospel is advancing like Paul, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Again, the first point is joy despite persecution. Joy despite persecution. This brings me to my second point this morning, and that's joy despite opposition. Joy despite opposition. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ. Now, let me stop there. I mean, that's great. So far, so good. Some indeed preach Christ. Amen. Good. Great even. Some indeed preach Christ. Now, the word some is a pronoun, meaning it's taking the place of a noun. Therefore, there's an antecedent that it's taking a place from. What's the antecedent of this pronoun? Well, it's found in verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says this. And most of the brothers, in the very end, says, speak the word without fear. The, the antecedent of some is brothers. That means some brothers indeed preach Christ. Now listen to this. From envy and rivalry. 
they are brothers, I will say through this, that means at the least, they are men who claim to be Christians. And they indeed preach Christ, meaning they preach the true gospel. When it says preach Christ, they're not just using Jesus' name because we see Paul call out heretics that use Jesus' name. These are people that are preaching the true gospel. Yet they are preaching it from envy and rivalry. Envy is the desire to deprive others of what is rightfully theirs. It's, it's a vice in scripture. It's sin, it's evil. It's a form of hatred, even. Romans 1.29 says that those who suppress the truth, it says this, are, are filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, uh, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy. Galatians 5.19 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, uh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy. Envy. Again, envy is a vice in Scripture. And envy is what these preachers are motivated by. And not just envy, but also rivalry which is another vice. We see this in the list of Galatians 5.19, the work of the flesh, their evidence. Rivalry is one of them. Some translate this word strife. That's a good translation. It means discord or contention. Rivalry. When you add this word with envy, envy and rivalry, it seems like, inferring this, that, that some, some brothers, were jealous of Paul Therefore, they're trying to stir up strife against Paul. Discord, contention. They are his rivals. Now, that's not surprising that, that Paul has rivals, right? Paul has all types of rivals. He has all types of, of people that are causing strife in his life. But, but what is surprising is how Paul describes these rivals. Some Brothers, in other words, some brothers indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There's, there's two things that are surprising. These were brothers who indeed preached Christ. Meaning they preached the true, clear gospel. They weren't heretics. We know this for sure. We know this for sure because Paul had, had no problem calling out heretics. In fact, Paul really made it a point to point out heretics and, and people that distorted the gospel. He would never say someone that was distorting the gospel indeed preached Christ. There's all types of, of things we see throughout the New Testament where Paul has written in his letters speaking out against those that distort the gospel, that distort the message of Christ. Paul called these people out and, and the language and the, the tone is different. I just want you to listen to the words of Galatians 1.6 and just, just hear the tone. It's just totally different. Verse 6 says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to um, distort the gospel of Christ. They're preaching a false gospel. They're using Jesus' name. We, we know these are the Judaizers. These are people that are adding works to grace in the name of Christ. Listen to what Paul says about these people. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's athema in Greek. That's damned, sent to hell. I mean, that's the strongest language you can use to rebuke someone. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is, is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul was not afraid to call out heretics. He was not a to say, hey, that's a different gospel. He called out those who distorted the gospel. 
Paul took the, the purity of the gospel seriously. He says, let him be accursed. I mean, that's, that's such strong language. But in Philippians, that's not what he says. The, the tone is completely different. It's not even close. Look at verse 15. It says this, some, this is brothers, indeed preach Christ from rivalry and envy, or from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It wasn't that these men didn't preach Christ or the true gospel. It's that they preached Christ with evil motives from envy and rivalry, seeking to afflict Paul while he was in prison. And listen, this is not the first time we see this in Scripture. In fact, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't know where Jonah is, go to Matthew and make a left. It's a bunch of small books called the Minor Prophets. It's right in there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In other words, there's this message from God to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I have a message for you to give to the Ninevites, to, to call out against it. Look what happens in verse 3. But, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I know most of us know this story. Again, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and, and Jonah goes the exact opposite direction, Tarshish. In fact, if you see this on a map, it's almost funny. Like, if you see where Nineveh is and, and then where Jonah goes, it, it's almost funny. It would be like God telling one of you to go to Hawaii and you get on a plane for Alaska. Right? It's the exact opposite direction. On his way, we, again, we know this story. He gets caught in a storm. He gets thrown off the ship, and a giant fish swallows him, then spits him out on the shore. And finally, after all of this, Jonah agrees to go to Nineveh. Smart. Turn to chapter 3. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, listen to this, the message that I tell you. Jonah, I have a message that I want you to proclaim to this city. You're the messenger. Here's the message. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet, here's the message, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown or destroyed or, or God's wrath poured out on this city. He's walking around this city telling them this message from God. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the message. This evil nation believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, this massive city, all of them, every, every single person believed God and put on sackcloth and, and, and repented. Look at verse 10. When, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Meaning, 
at least, and this is at the least, 120,000 people were saved from the wrath of God. 120,000 people believed, repented, and God's grace was poured out on them all. Thousands and thousands saved from God's wrath. And you would think this would have made Jonah so happy. Look what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It would be clear he was angry at the revival. Why? Well, thankfully, he tells us, verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, and I just picture him with his fists clenched as he looked up and prayed to God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I, I, I am so angry at the salvation of these people. I just want you to kill me. Why was... Jonah so angry because he hated them. He hated the Ninevites. Simply because he hated them. He, he wanted God's wrath to be poured out on them. He was, he was angry to the point of death that God's grace was poured out instead. He knew God was a, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew this he knew this, so when he heard to go take this message of disaster to, to Nineveh, he refused and went the opposite direction because he knew if Nineveh repented, God would relent from the disaster. And he didn't want that. Talk about having strife and rivalry in your heart. He had so much strife and, and hatred that he, he didn't even want Nineveh to hear about God's grace. He just wanted them to perish by, by God's wrath. He just wanted it poured out on them. Listen, that's someone who is preaching God's message with an ugly heart. An evil motive. And here's the amazing thing. Well over 120,000 were saved from Jonah's effort. One of, one of the greatest revivals we see in all of Scripture. People can preach truth with unholy motives. Hear that? People can preach truth with, with unholy motives, and, and that's the case in Philippians 1, 6, 15 through 16. Listen, I think there are pastors and Christians who preach Christ, the clear gospel, with unholy motives. For money, for fame, for the praises of, of man. In fact, I would go, go even further. I, I think there are pastors who aren't even saved, who proclaim Christ clearly, Proclaim truth, proclaim the gospel message clearly, yet aren't true Christians themselves. This is why we see men who are, who are once seemingly, use that word, seemingly faithful in their proclamation of the truth, that all, all of a sudden go off the rails. We see this with public figures. Or even men that 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 clearly proclaim the truth and the gospel who walk away from the faith. Joshua Harris just jumps in my mind. A public figure, a pastor for many years. Again, listen to Philippians 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, Paul doesn't give us exact details of what's going on here. It's either that he assumes the church, again, this letter is meant to be read uh, in front of the church at Philippi. He's assuming that 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 church knew what was going on, or he just didn't feel like it was necessary to give every single detail. But you can kind of paint a picture with, with the words that we have here. There are a number of men who are proclaiming the true gospel, again, a clear gospel message, but they were envious of Paul. Maybe because he was an apostle or his ministry was so big or, or just that people, people loved Paul. And therefore, they, they spart, started to speak out against him. Out of envy, they were saying things maybe like this. See, see he's finally getting what he deserves. This imprisonment proves what I've been saying all along, that God is against Paul. Obviously, God is punishing him. Or maybe they're saying something like this. If Paul had enough faith, he'd be able to get out of prison. He just needs to pray better. Whatever they were saying, they were using Paul's suffering and imprisonment to torment him. To denounce him, to slander him because they were envious of him. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, we just went through, through all the things Paul went through last week. I mean, talk about a, a horrible sin. Can you just imagine, after, after all of Paul's suffering for the gospel, beating after beating after beating, his whole body scarred because of the beatings. He's been in jail for the last four years. And now, having fellow brothers saying he's getting exactly what he deserves. God, God is punishing him. You, you want to talk about hurt? If there was ever church hurt, Paul was church hurt. People within the congregation, within, within Christianity, that hurt Paul. And how does Paul respond? What example does he give us? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. Man, if we would have the character of Paul. Paul is saying, they have ugly motives. They're even attacking me. But if they are proclaiming the true gospel in that, I rejoice. Listen, that's a godly attitude. That's a godly man. Therefore, Paul found joy despite opposition. This brings me to my last point this morning. The reason for that joy. Again, verse 18, it says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul, Paul is joy-filled because Christ is being proclaimed. Paul, Paul had a passion for the gospel, man. He just had a passion for the message to get out there. That Christ would be proclaimed, that the true Christ, the true gospel would, would be proclaimed. I mean, so much so, it just kind of comes out of him. Let me just point some things out. This, this passage alone, verse 12, it says this, has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, it, the gospel, has become known throughout the, the whole imperial guard and, and to all the rest. Verse 14, brothers are much more bold to speak, speak the word, that's the gospel, without fear. Verse, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. Verse 16, I have put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former pro- proclaim Christ. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. It just comes out of him. Paul was joy-filled because Christ is proclaimed. Not the evil motives. He wasn't joy-filled because of that. Not the slander of his ministry. Not the, the hurtful intent behind it. 
But Paul says, in that, what's that? In the proclamation of Christ, in that, I rejoice. Now, there's a truth here. I've been meditating, thinking about this, these few verses. The last two weeks, the sermon's been a two-week-long sermon here. There's a truth here that I think is just, that's pretty profound. Paul is joy-filled because the gospel message is being proclaimed. Why? Because the gospel message is the power of God for salvation. That's why. Listen, the power is not found in the messenger. It's not found in the messenger. It's not found in the sinlessness of the messenger. The gospel alone is the power of salvation. It's the message. It's the good news. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope we all proclaim Christ with pure motives. I hope that that our sin doesn't get in the way of people hearing the gospel clearly. I, I, I hope personally that, that my life lines up with my preaching. It's something I strive for. But the power of God is in the message, not the messenger. Romans 1, 16, this is Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then at the same time in Philippians 1.18, he can say, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Did you see that? In Galatians, Paul is talking about men who have distorted the gospel, distorted the message, blurred the gospel, preached a different gospel than the one that was given to them. In Philippians, Paul is talking about men who have the right message, the true gospel, but proclaim it with evil motives. In Galatians, Paul says, let him be accursed, anathema, damned. In Philippians, Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. Did you see that? Do you see the comparison there? It really shows the importance of getting the gospel message right. And this gets to my last application this morning. The clarity of the gospel is that important. The clarity of the gospel is that important. That in Galatians, Paul rebukes those who blur the gospel. And in Philippians... Paul rejoices that at least the gospel message is being proclaimed. You know, this is why I'm not afraid to speak out against the Catholic Church. I'm not judging their motives. I'm not judging their doctrine on the Trinity. I'm not saying that there, there aren't many who are saved within the Catholic Church. I believe there are. All I'm saying is that the Catholic Church gets the gospel message wrong. They add works to grace, baptism, and sacraments to faith. And in doing that, they distort the gospel. It becomes a different gospel. And I'm not going to shy away from pointing that out. You know, every time I mention the Catholic Church, I get all types of emails, people upset with me. Listen, email them. I'm not the one distorting the gospel. This is why it's a a two-year process for for us before we'll send a cross-cultural worker or missionary out on the field. We want to make sure that they know the gospel. And not just the gospel, but the importance of the clarity of the gospel, communicating the gospel clearly. 
Meaning, we are teaching them the importance of knowing the culture and the language well. You know the Bible calls us ambassadors? Ambassadors for who? God. If America sent an ambassador to China, do you think they would know Chinese and the Chinese culture well? We better know the cultures well that we're proclaiming the gospel into. We're ambassadors for the king of the universe. This is why we call out groups and or organizations that distort the gospel. Publicly, if necessary, we'll warn the church of groups like Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Scientology, Oneness Pentecostals. Listen, there, there are many churches in our town that we disagree with. That's pretty obvious. When it comes to secondary issues like church governance, charismatic gifts, baptism, qualification of, of pastors. But listen, if they are truly proclaiming the gospel in that, I rejoice. <laughs> I rejoice. Just like Paul, in that, the proclamation of the gospel, maybe not our differences, but, but in that, I rejoice and pray for and cheer those churches on. But if a church or a parachurch organization is distorting the gospel, we are going to rebuke it and encourage the church to avoid it. And by the way, I just want to be clear, I mean, that's my calling as a pastor. I know I say this often and I quote this verse a lot, but I just don't think the church understands what the calling of the pastor is. Titus 1.9 says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He, he must be able to teach and instruct in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's the calling of the pastor. Pastors that don't rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine are failing at their calling. They're not faithful to the calling. Because we live in a postmodern culture that devalues truth and doctrine, it's really unpopular. You get labeled as unloving and divisive when you start calling it out. But listen, Paul had no problem. In Galatians, he rebuked those who contradicted. it. Let me ask a question. Do you think Paul was being divisive? Do you think Paul was being unloving? Listen, if a group or a church is off on a secondary issue, but it's preaching the gospel clearly and faithfully, in that I rejoice. Like Paul, in that I rejoice. But, but if they're getting the gospel wrong, that's a completely different story. Turn with me to one last passage. It's Romans 16, verse 17. This is Paul again. Romans 16, verse 17. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Now let me stop there. Who do you think causes divisions within the church? Well, here's who Paul says causes divisions. And create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine that, that you have been taught, avoid them. Did you hear that? According to Paul, the people causing divisions are the ones that are teaching false doctrine, not the ones rebuking it. It is one thing, right? It's the one who is teaching, it's the one who is teaching contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught that is divisive. Again, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul says this, avoid them. For such a person, or for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery 
they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is why we have to call them out. These are those that are young Christians or those that are young in the faith that that aren't going to know better. We have to warn them. The clarity of the gospel is just that important. That important. So here are three points this morning. Joy despite persecution. Joy despite opposition. And the reason for that joy, Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, whether, in other words, in good motivations, in in true motivations, or hypocritical motivations, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our our Father, God, I pray, Lord, for, for our church, for those that are are hearing these words for those that have read Philippians, Lord, that, that we see Paul's attitude and, and Paul's uh, love for the gospel and, and Paul's willing to, to sacrifice himself for the glory, for your glory, Lord. That he could say about those who are slandering him and his ministry that, that if they proclaim Christ, in that I rejoice. I pray that we would have that same gracious attitude, Lord, as we may have real disagreements with, with others within the Christian community, Lord. So much so that, that it separates us as a church from that church, Lord. But, but I pray we can say with, with, with boldness, Lord, that if they're proclaiming the gospel, in that I rejoice. And, and I, I pray for them, and I support them, and I love them. Let us have that same spirit. Let us have that same attitude, that same character that Paul has, Lord, but I also pray for the other side, Lord, that we would have the same courage as Paul. That we would call out those that distort the gospel and rebuke false teachings. That we would warn those, Lord, who are young in the faith, and even those that aren't young in the faith, that that anything that distorts the gospel, Lord, Anything that that is contrary to the sound doctrine, the primary issues of Christianity, we are called to avoid it. God, I pray for the the pastoral team, not just our pastoral team, Lord, but but every pastor, Lord, that they would be faithful to that calling, Lord. I I just know how hard it is. It's not fun to call out false doctrine. It's not fun to call out those that contradict it. It's one of the hardest things I think we do. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to do it, though. In your son's name, amen.